0: Hi friends, welcome back to Nate Talks to His Friends about Jesus. Dude, how's your summer? Dude, I hope it's balmy. I hope it's warm. I hope it's good. Hey, let's talk some Old Testament, all right? So today we're going to talk about the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. Now, they are two books in our Bible, but originally these books were one scroll with one author. So this book is meant to be read as one book. It's meant to be read together so that we can get a feel for the whole thing. Here's what we know: We know that God made a covenant with Abraham. Based on our stories so far, and come follow me. Based on our studies here in the Bible, and so God made this covenant with Abraham to have him and his descendants belong to God's family, and to as God's covenant family, their responsibility was then to invite all the world into God's light, His love, and and ultimately invite everybody to be transformed by God so that they could be in his presence, progressing with him and being with him forever. Like, that is the most exciting commission I can think of. And we have, after this covenant, traced this family for hundreds of years and they suck at their job. Like, they they really suck. Like, they, they had prostitutes in the temple. They sacrificed their children to false gods by burning them. They let poor people starve to death. They they were me first through and through. It is a train wreck. They missed it. They had something sacred and they missed it. And it led to the Assyrian destruction of Israel in the north and the Babylonian captivity of Judah in the south. And it is a hot mess of pain and slavery. And, And this... Very difficult situation, brands into the Abrahamic psyche, the children of Israel's collective brainwaves, the words never again with glowing metal on seared brain flesh, basically. They're like, we are never going to abandon God again. So basically, the story ends like we have told you in Kings and Chronicles, and we pick up the story now 50 years after the decimation of Babylon and Babylon, who has been subsequently conquered by Persia. Persia, you can find it in modern-day Iran, right? Now, the story of Ezra and Nehemiah is crafted into four distinct sections. The first three each follow a different Jewish leader and these Jewish leaders' efforts to renew Israel. And each story is going to follow basically this pattern. Number one, a command from the king. Number two, a struggle to renew Israel. And number three, surprisingly, the stories are not going to end with a bang, but rather with a, meh? Is that it? And then the fourth story is going to do all that over again, but with the whole book. Okay? All right. You got it? Story number one. Story number one starts with Cyrus, who is king of Persia. It says that that Cyrus, the king of Persia, who the Lord stirred up. It's kind of interesting that we have someone not of the lineage of Abraham being acted on by God to bring about the Lord's designs. Here's what Cyrus says. He said, The Lord God of heaven hath given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he hath charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem. So Cyrus says, If any of you Jews are feeling that call to build the temple, you have my permission to gather up and go. And with this commission, you get a sense of hope, like a hope of everything that has been promised up to this point in the Old Testament will come true. A hope for the temple to be rebuilt and God's presence to rest therein. A hope for a true messianic king, the, the true king to fix this earth. A, a hope that with this temple that God's kingdom on earth will begin to spread under this messianic ruler. Fulfilling the promise made to God made to Abraham to bless all the children of the earth, all the peoples of the earth. It's really exciting. So there are many Jews who are excited about this and they pack up their stuff and they go. And those who who don't feel that they can go really are are generous with what they, they give in their resources to bring about this great work. So once in Jerusalem again, under the direction of a guy named Zerubbabel, the Jews make an altar and begin to offer sacrifices to God again. Then they commemorate the sacred holidays like the Feast of Tabernacles, which is a feast that commemorates the original journey out of Egypt to the Promised Land, It's definitely an appropriate commemoration of their return from Babylon to the promised land, like these two exoduses, or I don't know, is the plural exodai? Probably something like that. And and so then they lay the foundation of the temple and, and they begin constructing it in earnest. But then right here, the story takes a weird turn. See, back in the day, 50 years before, when Babylon came and took captives, they left some of the poorest people behind in the land to be day laborers on the farms. Basically, they were so poor, they were more or less slaves already, so might as well leave them to be slaves and, and workers on the, these places. Well, by now, their grandchildren come to the newly returned exiles and say, Let us build with you, for we seek your God as you do. That's great. Like, yes. bless bless all the families of the earth. But Zerubbabel replies, Ye have nothing to do with us to build a house unto our God. I do not like this look at all. It sounds an awfully lot like Alma 32. As Alma was teaching and speaking unto the people upon the hill Oneida, there came a great multitude unto him, who were those whom we have been speaking of, whom were poor in heart because of their poverty, as did the things of the world. And they came unto Alma, and the one who was foremost among them said unto him, Behold, what shall these my brethren do? For they are despised of all men because of their poverty, yea, and more especially by our priests. For they have cast us out of our synagogues, which we have labored abundantly to build with our own hands, and they have cast us out because of our exceeding poverty, and we have no place to worship our God. And behold, what shall we do? It's a mirror images right here, basically. So um, these grandchildren of those who are left behind, right, come and say, we want to build the temple. We seek your God as as you do. And the response is, ye have nothing to do with us. Oh, man. So after the rejected from building the temple, the non-exiles then weakened the hands of the people of Judah and troubled them in building the temple, and hired counselors or lawyers against them to frustrate their purposes. One way uh, these lawyers or counselors tried to frustrate the construction of the temple was by writing the king of Persia and saying unto the king that the Jews which came up from thee to us are come unto Jerusalem, building the rebellious and bad city. Be it known, king. If this city be builded and the walls set up again, then they will not pay toll, tribute, and custom. So basically, the lawyers write a letter to the king of Persia saying, Hey, these guys, you you sent them here to do a good work, but if you let them do it, like what we're hearing is that they will not pay their taxes and and they will be a drain upon your system. So the king sends an answer saying, that this city of old time hath made insurrection against kings. Like Jerusalem was known for raising insurrections and rebellion and sedition. And so he says, So I believe you, cause these Jews to cease that the city might not be builded. And so they ceased the, the work on the construction of the, of the city and more particularly on the temple. Then, after a bit of a layoff, you get Zerobabel again. I don't know if I'm saying his name right, but you, you get the right picture here. Zerobabel, he was like, we are here to build the temple. We got to build the temple. So he just begins again to build the house of God, even uh, against the, the direct command of the king. And when the Persian governors see the construction project, they report back to the now king of Persia, a guy named Darius, That the Jews are building again when they aren't supposed to. Well, the Jews reply, we are supposed to. Look at the record and you will see that Cyrus commissioned this uh, temple. So the king looks back through the old records of Cyrus. And sure enough, there was found a roll and therein was a record and thus it was written in the first year of Cyrus the king. This same Cyrus of the king made a decree concerning the house of God at Jerusalem, let the house be builded, and they were offered sacrifices. So Darius, uh, upon seeing that this is an authorized construction project, tells the governor to stop messing with them and be far from them, thence, just leave them alone, let the work of this house of God alone, that they may not be hindered. So now with the new permission, the Jews prospered and they built and they finished the temple. And the children of Israel, the priests, the Levites, and the the rest of the the children of captivity, they are called, dedicated this new uh, temple to God with joy and offered at the dedication of this house of God 100 bullocks and 200 rams and 400 lambs. Now, this sort of grand numbers uh, and sacrifice and dedication should automatically draw your mind to the dedication of the tabernacle by Moses, and the dedication of the, the original temple by Solomon. And on both of these dedicatory sessions, God came into these sacred spheres, and his glory was so overwhelming that they couldn't even go in. That is what they are saying is coming, but it doesn't. After the, after the dedication, it's just the building. Many of the priests and the Levites and the chiefs of the fathers who were ancient men that had seen the first house when the foundation of this house was laid before their eyes wept with a loud voice. The idea is that like you're doing it, but something's off here. And that's the end of story number one. Now for story number two. Story number two starts about 60 years after Zerubbabel, right? So we're getting like a hundred years, right? So it centers on a guy named, uh, a scribe named Ezra, who it says had prepared his heart to seek the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach Israel in statutes and judgments. Now, uh This story is written uh about contemporary time with Nephi, and so you'll see some similarities in how it is written in first person narrative, much like Nephi writes his account, which is interesting and different from um, from how we, the the record to to this point that we've seen in the Old Testament. so you can kind of see uh, that the time period reflected in the two scripture books anyway, Ezra travels to Jerusalem. And right when he arrives, some of the nobles of the city approach him and say, The people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the people of the land. For they have taken of their daughters for themselves and, and for their sons, so that the holy seed have mingled themselves with the people of the land. Or in other words, they are like Ezra. Some of our people have married non-Israelites. And Ezra just loses his mind upon hearing this. Ezra said, I rent my garments. He, he tears his clothes and his coat. He says, I plucked off the hair of my head. He, he straight up tears his own hair out of his head and out of his beard. And that night in front of everyone, he says, I fell upon my knees. I spread out my hands unto the Lord, my God. And I said, oh my God, I am ashamed Because we were slaves, and you have given us a second chance. And now, O God, what shall we say after this? For we have forsaken thy commandments. Where you have said, Now therefore give not your daughters unto thy sons, neither take their daughters unto your sons. Now, after this very dramatic prayer, complete with clothes ripping and hair tearing. Ezra and the leaders of the city tell everyone who has married a non-Israelite that they need to get a divorce and abandon their children that they have had with these non-Israelite women. What? Come on. Like, I I see the basis of what Ezra is saying, right? Like, he he is scared about the idolatry that has led to the destruction of the people of Israel before. But like, like, I'm not seeing this, like... Divorce your wives and abandon your children command. Like this seems to be a little bit more where, where Jesus says in Matthew 23, You blind guides which strain at a gnat and swallow a camel. It seems like that sort of vibe. Additionally, like we we don't see any evidence of God commanding Ezra to mandate a wholesale divorce and abandonment through the contemporary prophet Malachi at the time. In fact, Malachi clearly teaches that God opposes divorce. That doesn't stop Ezra from ramming this initiative forward, shouting in effect to all the non-Israelite children and wives that ye have no place in Israel, right? Just like we saw Zerubbabel tell the people like, dude, we don't need you to, to start building our house, right? Like, go away. We we don't want anything to do with you. Like, it's a weird vibe right there. Anyways, that's story number two. Again, ending in this kind of anticlimactic whimper. You can't help like there is, feel like there's something off kilter about this approach. Anyway, story number three introduces us to another Jewish leader named Nehemiah. And Nehemiah was the cup bearer for the Persian king Artaxerxes. Now, this position we talked about before in Joseph of Egypt's story. It's not just a glorified waiter. This is a position for someone of considerable talent and trustworthiness. So one day, Nehemiah's brother Hanani comes back from traveling in their homeland, Jerusalem, Israel, and tells Nehemiah of the decrepit state of repair that the walls of Jerusalem are in. And for whatever reason, this cuts Nehemiah to the core and he wants to use whatever power and influence he has to make an impact. So he goes to the king and he requests a sabbatical from his service to the king to go and build up the city walls of Jerusalem. And because he is a trusted and loyal servant, Artaxerxes grants him the request. Well, Nehemiah shows up in Jerusalem, and he says, I went out by a night, and I viewed the walls of Jerusalem, which were broken down, and the gates thereof consumed with fire. And then he convinces the Jews living there that the God of heaven will prosper them if they set, up to re- set out to repair the city. Well, when those who have been left behind, who by this point are known as Samaritans, who, like we've said before, are just Israelites who are too poor to get taken as slaves in Babylon see that the walls are being built, they don't even bother coming to ask if they can help. We've seen multiple times that they have been rejected and told that they have no place for them here. Like Zerubbabel and Ezra have made it super clear that they, they, they are not welcome among God's people. So instead of asking to help and contribute, they start messing with the construction project, sabotaging it. And in response, Nehemiah makes a very Captain Moroni-like speech saying, Be ye not afraid of them. Remember the Lord, which is great and terrible, and fight for your brethren, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your houses. Like straight up Captain Moroni right there, right? So under Nehemiah's leadership, they keep building with swords strapped on, ready to fight as they spread on the mortar with their, their hands. Now, in addition to fixing walls, Nehemiah also promotes justice among the the returned from exile Jews, abolishing slavery and forgiving debt. Uh, Well, when the Jews who are no longer considered Jews by those newly immigrated back Jews, you remember like, or in other words, the Samaritans, when they discover that their plans for outright attack and sabotage aren't working, they try and distract Nehemiah from his construction efforts, but he dra- drops this classic line, quote, "I am doing a great work so that I cannot come down." If you haven't read Elder Ukdorf's talk on that line recently, go give it another listen. It's worth your time. Then, after a lot of hard work, Nehemiah is able to overcome the obstacles, finish the wall, and make it clear that the Samaritans have no place in Jerusalem. End of story three. With the same mixed feelings of, I get it, you did something good, but I don't know, man, about the, the way you're going about it. To celebrate Nehemiah's renewal of the walls uh, and Ezra's spiritual renewal of the law among the Jews, Nehemiah and Ezra call for a massive community celebration of feasts of tabernacles where everybody stays in makeshift shelters like they are all camping out to see the 4th of July parade, right? Um, and then during the celebration, they read in the book of the law of God distinctly and gave the sense and caused them to be understood the, uh, the reading. Basically, they they reread the history of God's mercy towards the people of Israel from Abraham, the escape from Egypt, through the long period of judges and kings, down to their exile in Babylon, and now their triumphant return. And then Ezra calls for them to recommit themselves uh, to God, particularly by avoiding inter- Um, marriage, not marrying anyone who is non-Israelite, not to give our daughters unto the people of the land, nor take their daughters for our sons. And then he he calls for them to keep the Sabbath day holy, right? That that, um, they don't sell on the Sabbath day, don't buy on the Sabbath day, all of that. So following this big revival meeting, Nehemiah returns to his post in Persia, and life goes on in Jerusalem. After a while, Nehemiah decides to take another vacation and return and see how dedicated his people are to the the Lord after all his efforts to rebuild the walls and with Ezra establish righteousness. But instead of finding a revived people, he finds that the priest Eliashib has turned a whole section of the temple into his own bachelor pad. He finds people working on Sunday fishing on Sunday, buying and selling on Sunday. Um, I guess it's not Sunday then, the Sabbath, the Saturday to them, right? Not to mention people are diminishing the protective value of the walls he worked so hard on by setting up their market stalls right next to the wall so people could use it to just climb over the wall. And Nehemiah just loses it and he says, I contended with them and cursed them and smote certain of them and plucked off their hair. Dude, did you hear that? He straight up is just screaming at people as he punches them in the face and literally tears out their hair because they're, they're working on Sunday and building marketplaces by his wall. And that's where the book ends. What? What the heck? It's not depressing at all. Well, what do we do with this? Before the story was depressing in kings because they were complete degenerates. Now they're trying to be good and it still comes off discordant. What do we make of this story in Ezra and Nehemiah? These are the people that we will recognize so clearly as Pharisees in the New Testament. And do not diminish the complexity of the, these people, Ezra, Nehemiah, and other faithful individuals that come back, or the, in, the Pharisees when we see them coming up in the next year. It is so easy for us to say, well, those Pharisees were just a bunch of harsh, bigoted, pinched nose, condescending religious zealots, and just disregard them. But the truth is, many of them are squeaky clean. Like they could have run for office with no skeletons in their closet. These are people who did their religious duties, who were counselors, healers, pastors of real people, well-intentioned, trying-hard real people. But as I'm looking at the story, I'm seeing that both the pre-exile Jews who get a little too loose in life and the post-exile Jews who get a little too tight, they miss it. Man, both groups miss it. Neither story ends happily. The Babylonians destroy the first temple in Jerusalem and the Romans destroy the second temple. So why even tell this story if we're not supposed to emulate Ezra and Nehemiah and Zerubbabel? Why tell the story if they're not heroes? Well, we tell the story for the same reason as you tell the rest of the story in the Old Testament because they're real. This story is showing you how you can miss the path left or right. Your challenge, and this is the challenge of a lifetime, is to find the path, the way back to God. Taoist, they call it Wu Wei. It's this process of finding the balance between extremes. They call it the harmony of yin and yang. I know I'm sounding like a hippie here, but hear me out. Because some of you are listening to this story, to the behavior of Zerubbabel, Ezra, and Nehemiah. And you're like, yes, obviously they missed it. That is why we need to love and accept everybody just the way they are. But I'm telling you, if you're thinking that, you're wide Right? And if you're like Ezra and Nehemiah, we're on track. What the world needs is actual obedience, actual faithfulness and loyalty to God. I got to tell you, you're, you're missing it. You're wide left. See, at some point, you're going to have to progress past such a simplistic view of, of progress of the world of life. You're going to have to be mature and nuanced and uncertain Focused on Jesus in the process, filling out through the guidance of the Holy Ghost till you find the middle path, the Wu Wei, the straight and narrow path. Dude, I I think we've really misunderstood the straight and narrow path. See, like we always think that the straight was spelled S-T-R-A-I-G-H-T, like a clear, continuous, linear, straight line. But the way it's spelled almost exclusively in Scripture is S-T-R-A-I-T, which simply means narrow. Like over and over, when they stay straight and narrow path, they're saying the narrow, narrow path. Meaning you can miss the path, the way, if you're too lenient or if you're too strict. The problem is most of the time, you're, if you believe you're, you're, you're just loving people, you're going to think you're right and justified. If you're thinking you just need more obedience, then you're going to think you're right and justified. Jesus calls this out. He says, straight is the gate and narrow is the way. He's it, just poetically saying the same thing twice. Straight is the gate and narrow is the way which leadeth unto life and few be there find it. Narrow is the way. And few be that find it, or from Lehi. And it came to pass that I beckoned unto them, and and I also did say unto them with a loud voice that they should come unto me and partake of the fruit which was desirable above all other fruit. And it came to pass that they did come unto me and partake of the fruit also. And it came to pass that I was desirous that Laman and Lemuel should come and partake of the fruit also. Wherefore, I cast mine eyes toward the head of the river that perhaps I might see them. And it came to pass that I saw them, but they would not come unto me and partake of the fruit. And I beheld a rod of iron, and it extended along the bank of the river, and it led to the tree by which I stood. And behold, a straight and narrow path, there's that spelling again, a narrow, narrow path which came along by the rod of iron, even to the tree by which I stood, and it also led to the head of the fountain unto a large and spacious field as if it had been the world. See, what we're trying to do in this life is not just walk a straight line, but rather what we are trying to do is constantly feel the boundaries of the extremes between licentiousness, Licentious, licentious, got it, behavior and Pharisaical behavior. We're trying to to find the, the balance between being too loose and too strict. Real life is nuanced. Real religion is not a checklist, but rather a way of being. And therefore, it requires real awareness. You are going to miss the path if you get too far either way. Jesus is asking us instead to be alive, not just to live by rote memorization, but to be alive, awake, and aware enough to listen to the guidance of the Holy Ghost and act, walking in that narrow, balanced way of life. Dude, like with all things, Jesus is our model in this balance. At times, he forgives sinners, and other times he drives them with whips. Sometimes he sympathizes with those who struggle, and other times he calls them out for their laziness. Occasionally, he congratulates the upright, and other times he burns them for being so stiff. If you want to walk the highest spiritual path, It is not going to be found in living loosey-goosey here and it is also not going to be found locking yourself away in the temple like some monastic. The highest spiritual path is found in living life itself. Living life wherever you're at. As a mom running errands in suburbia, as a student in school or working in the office, as you act in life, You will feel the edges, the extremes, like a blind person finding the sidewalk with a cane, swinging back and forth. And in that process, you'll feel the middle. You will act and you will feel from the Holy Ghost, ah, you're a little too liberal there or a little too harsh. And so you'll repent, which simply means you'll begin again, new breath, new life, and you'll recalibrate. And you can recalibrate because Jesus will cover your well-intentioned errors with his grace. You don't have to worry about it. You're just finding your place. And in time, you'll find that balanced center point on the pendulum of life where you're free from the swings, where you're at rest. Try it. I'm telling you, as you do, you'll find what Jesus says here when he says, I am the way, the truth, the life. And no man cometh unto the Father but by me. Come unto him and live a new, balanced, peaceful, renewed, energetic, and fun life. He is the way. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.